Specialty Story, session number 148. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray. Thank you for taking some time to join me today. Now, I have a great guest today who practices in a specialty that I really didn't know much about. I knew about what he does day in and day out for the most part, but the actual title of the specialty, I'm like, wow, I've never really heard that title before. Now, I'm talking to Dr. Walter Kutz, who is a neurotologist. Now, he is an ENT-trained physician who has a subspecialty training in neurotology. And he, like you probably have heard about cochlear implants and helping kids and adults start to hear again if they, if they have issues with hearing. That's the kind of stuff that he does. And it's amazing. And I didn't even really know this like name of this subspecialty until talking to him. Like neurotology, it sounds just really, really cool. And it is. I have a great discussion with Dr. Kutz about what drew him to neurotology and ENT and what he does day in and day out, what he likes about it, what he doesn't like about it, why he chose to be in an academic setting, and much more. So without further ado, let's go ahead and say hello to Dr. Kutz and really begin the discussion with what drew Dr. Kutz to ENT and to neurotology. Yeah, you know, uh, as most medical students, uh, you get involved with anatomy lab and you really enjoy, um, I enjoyed all of anatomy, but especially when we got to the head and neck section of anatomy, I just found that fascinating, um, dissecting the neck, all the intricate structures and just a small compact area. And I remember we spent maybe a half a day or less probably on the ear anatomy. <laughs> and uh, I'm a musician, so I was like, you know, I think the ear, ear anatomy is pretty interesting. And I was thinking to myself, wouldn't it be interesting to, to take a drill and you can remove the mastoid bone and you can you can, you can can remove and, and operate in the ear using a drill and a microscope? And later I found out that was its own specialty. So I really stumbled upon this um, uh, by just in an anatomy lab and thinking of how neat it would be to operate on the ear and to find out it's an entire specialty. As you go through your medical training, uh, obviously otolaryngology isn't typically a required rotation for medical students. How did you get the exposure that you needed to to kind of confirm that this is what you wanted to to specialize in? Yeah, that is unfortunate that a lot of medical students do not uh, get exposure to otolaryngology. And if they do, a lot of times it's pretty late in their training. And it's a it's a competitive specialty, so really you want to have had done some research and things outside of just a normal classroom. Um, for me, I actually thought otolaryngology was um, kind of general practice with a little more uh, a little more slant on like maybe allergies and nasal problems. Then I found that it's a very broad field that combines surgery with medicine, and we're kind of the specialist on the head and neck. Um, so fortunately for me, I was able to learn early about my end of my second year of training that this this specialty existed. And then with that interest in head and neck anatomy, my interest in music, I thought otolaryngology would be a perfect specialty for me. Yeah. What traits do you think lead to someone being a good otolaryngologist? Yeah, I think, um, you know, you definitely have to enjoy surgery. You have to enjoy working with your hands. You uh, have to be able to uh, deal with the stresses of surgery, um, you know, the, the, the 
times when things don't heal properly, maybe complications. So I, I think that's important. Um, and that is a significant part of otolaryngology and all the subspecialties of otolaryngology. Um, I also think you have to have an interest in medicine. You know, the uh, a lot of what we do is clinical. It's not necessarily surgical. And so it's a very nice mix of surgery um, and, um, and, and medicine, frankly. Um, you have to, especially for my field of neurotology, most of my surgeries are with a microscope and fine picks and, and drills. And so I think you have to enjoy detailed work, um, uh, being able to look under a microscope for seven, eight hours a day, which for some people is just pretty taxing. Yeah. So I think if you have those sort of interests and skills, I think it's a good specialty to consider. Yeah. Let's narrow down into neurotology. I think that's the first time I've, I've read or heard of that term of that kind of subspecialty. What got you interested in that? Yeah. You know, I... I originally went to college to be a band director, actually, in about my <laughs> second year of college. I One time at band camp, you have those yeah, stories. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. Well, I decided to my sophomore year, but you know, I enjoyed, I love music and it's still a, my, my main hobby. And, mm-hmm. and I enjoy going to the symphony. If I travel somewhere, I'll try to catch the symphony, whatever, whatever city or town I'm in. Um, but, um, you know, that, I think the interest in, uh, in music, um, you know, really, really allowed me to uh, to pick a field where I could, you know, I could help people hear better. And, and frankly, neurotology, the majority of our work is to improve people's hearing. We also treat things, um, skull-based disorders, such as uh, tumors, most commonly an acoustic neuroma. We were talking earlier, we also um, will address facial nerve disorders and tumors of the facial nerve. And also, because balance is part of the inner ear, we also are specialists of balance. So I think when you looked at just my, my interest in music and communication, I think it was a, a good specialty for me. When you're dealing with your your patients, taking care of your patients, uh, and, and especially hearing, it, are those kids that you're treating? Are they adults with with adult hearing loss? What is what types of patients are those? Yeah, you, we have a mix of both. I would say probably about thirty percent of my practice is pediatric, and seventy percent are adults. Um, you know, for a hearing standpoint, a significant part of what we do are cochlear implants, and of course. You know, kids are born deaf, and so we implant young kids, uh, even as young as one years of age or even uh, uh, younger. And then, as we, as we know, we have an aging population, so we also will implant older patients. So, really, we take care of patients from, from birth all the way until even 100 years old. Yeah. Now, in, in the kind of big D deaf community, hearing is, is an interesting conversation, whether they consider themselves disabled or not. Um, it, I was listening to a podcast recently. Uh, one of the guests, wa- one of the guests' daughters was born deaf. And I think they went ahead and did a cochlear implant. And she was glad she did because of just language and reading and everything else that comes with hearing, especially from an early age. When when you are talking to parents, what kind of conversations are you having around that, uh, whether a cochlear implant is good or bad or indifferent or how do, how do you come across that in the deaf community? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And and certainly um, I understand where the deaf community, um, their perspective Um a lot of the patients are self-selected. Um, oftentimes, if a child's born to two deaf parents, they they won't seek a cochlear implant or really won't seek help. So the vast majority of my patients are going to be, especially pediatric, be kids that are born deaf to hearing parents. Mm. 
Uh, most causes of um, uh, congenital hearing loss are going to be an auto, autosomal recessive uh, disorder. So, uh, you know, it, it, it almost self-selects. I've rarely seen deaf children that are born to deaf parents, um, probably for that very reason, yeah. um, that they wouldn't be as interested in a cochlear implant. Interesting. What are some of the biggest misconceptions around either uh, the the kind of hearing side of the surgery that you do or, or more broadly, generally otolaryngology? Yes. Yeah, so otolaryngology, uh, if we look at general otolaryngology, it's a, it's very broad field. Um, a lot of general otolaryngologists will do ear surgery, similar surgeries that I do, um, depending on their training and their comfort level, they may do more advanced or less advanced surgery. But uh, a general otolaryngologist is going to also do a lot of sinus surgery, head and neck surgery, like thyroidectomy, prodidectomy. They'll, they'll do, uh, we're actually trained in facial plastics. So about a quarter of our training is facial plastics. So they may do skin lesions and uh, depending on their training, they may do blepharoplasties, rhinoplasties. Um, so really the, you know, if you go to a, a good training program, which most training programs are excellent, you can come out and really practice and, you know, kind of whatever interest you have, whatever comfort level you have, but it's a very broad field from a surgical standpoint. Wow. What does a typical day look like for you? I typically have two days of clinic and two days of operating room. Um, my clinic days, you know, start around 7.30 or 8, usually done by 4. By the time I do all my charting, I'm done by 5. Um, I'll see about 8 to 10 new patients, maybe about 20 follow-up patients, with maybe post-operative or uh, patients with a uh, Meniere's disease, which of course is a recurrent cause of vertigo or, or other medical problems. Typically, I'll do three to four surgeries, and that could be ranged from a cochlear implant, repairing a tympanic membrane perforation, removing a cholesteatoma, which is a skin cyst that can migrate in the middle ear. Um, you know, there's less common surgeries, such as removing facial nerve uh, tumors. Uh, we also do a fair amount of uh, acoustic neuroma surgery. Um, uh, these are longer cases that we work with neurosurgery. So that's Though our days are, are pretty busy and it, it averages about two days a week. And then that fifth, that fifth day could be either operating or, a, or academic administrative time. Not vacation time. <laughs> no. <laughs> Still have to work five days a week. <laughs> oh, man. What does call look like for you? You know, I'm in a big academic practice. Uh, there's well over 30 of us. So I take about three weeks a year. Um, typically for call, um, We'll round on the patients on the weekend for the entire service. And then, you know, if any emergency comes in and that needs to go to the operating room, we're available. Um, you know, that could be an, an urgent airway. It could be a, a neck abscess. Um, those are the sort of typical emergencies you see in otolaryngology. With neurotology, um, we don't really have too many emergencies per se, um, especially things that would need to be taken in the middle of the night. But for me, for call, I take for our entire group, which ends up being about three weeks a year. Yeah. What was the decision algorithm for you to stay in academics versus maybe going out to the community? Yeah, you know, I, you know, a lot, like a lot of trainees, I've only really known academics, uh, although I did my fellowship at the House Clinic in Los Angeles, which is um, a private practice group with a really uh, significant kind of academic slant. They have really high level research. Um, and I've always been a leader in the field of otology and neurotology. But for me, I really enjoy working with residents and medical students teaching. Um, I enjoy clinical research, being involved with that. Um, you know, I, you know, I enjoy, uh, I'm the program director for our fellowship. I'm the associate program director for our residency. So I really enjoy organizing and building things. And I think that's what academics gives you. You know, if you're if you enjoy administrative or research or clinical or teaching, you can sort of figure out whatever works best for you and, and, and pursue that and make that work. Yeah. 
do you feel like with all the hats that you're wearing and, and your clinic schedule, surgery schedule, do you feel like you have enough time for life outside of the hospital? I do. You know, it's, uh, sometimes it gets, you know, it gets somewhat exhausting and it's more stress trying to get everything done, but I'm honestly home by five, five thirty most evenings. Um, I'm able to coach my girls softball teams for, I guess about eight years now. They're all in <laughs> high school. So that's about to end. I watch most of my son's golf tournaments in the weekends. Um, I'm able to, one nice part about academics is, um, you know, if you, if you become involved and, and you do clinical research and you get to know people, you're invited to meetings and some of these meetings are international. So that's enjoyable to do that sort of travel. And I do think it's a, it has a very good balance between uh, a you know, fulfilling career and then a, a really nice uh, outside life. Yeah. Let's talk about the, the training path where there's probably not much time for outside life. Uh, what is, right. what does the training <laughs> path look like to become a, a, um, uh, otolaryngologist or a, neur- a neurotologist. Neurotologist, yeah. So um, you have to complete a five-year otolaryngology residency. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the, around your fourth year, you determine what sort of subspecialty, if you're going to do a subspecialty. About a half of our residents do a fellowship. Uh, and then so if you want to do neurotology, then you're going to apply. And it's another two years of training. Uh, in otolaryngology, there's two subspecialties that are recognized by the American Board of Otolaryngology, and, and neurotology is one, and then pediatric otolaryngology is the other. Mm. So to get their certificate of additional qualification, you have to do a two-year fellowship. So it is an additional two years, ends up being seven years total. So it's kind of a long training. Yeah. For you, meant you mentioned the certificate for for someone going through training and and they see a, a subspecialty that interests them, but it's not recognized by ACGME or by the 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 specialty board. Is that something that people should stay away from, or is just it's just different? I think it's just different. You know, um, like f- facial plastics isn't really recognized, um, you know, by our board. But mm-hmm. um, if you're gonna you know, primarily practice facial plastic surgery, you're going to want to do a facial plastics fellowship, okay. which is, of course, shared between plastic surgeons and otolaryngologists and, and other specialties. But I think it depends on your their subspecialty. Yeah. How competitive is is otolaryngology to match into? It's competitive. You know, we, this, it, it kind of waxes and wanes. It's probably in the top three to five most competitive specialties. Mm-hmm. Um, this year, for instance, we had about 450 applications. So it's pretty competitive. And we we take four a year. So out of those 450 applications, we had to, and they're excellent, excellent. Uh, the medics are excellent coming out. But we would, we interview about 40 out of that 450 and then we match four. So it's a competitive specialty. Yeah. Being the associate program director, I think you said for the residency, what sort of discussions are you having with step one going pass fail and how that's going to affect your your selection of who you're inviting for interviews? Yeah, that's a great question. When I saw that, um, you know, it does create some challenges. Realistically, we would not really want to use a step one score. Um, you know, uh, some medical s- students will have more time to study than others, depending on the medical school. Um, the fact of the matter is the applicants are very competitive, um, which is great um, for medicine, but it's difficult if you're an applicant. And so, you know, we wouldn't particularly place a lot of weight into the score, but we would, you know, we would take that into some consideration um, just because you have to have some sort of objective finding to, to differentiate applicants. I think, you know, with the pass fail, we'll just have to work around that. And um, I think we'll be able to, you know, be able to still you know, choose the applicants that'd be a good fit for our program, but it's going to present some challenges. What should a student be doing to, to make themselves competitive for, for matching? 
yeah, I think if you're going to match in a competitive, especially like otolaryngology, I think that you really need to be involved with research. You need to show that you have an academic interest. Um, uh, I, I would recommend finding a mentor as early as you can. Uh, you don't necessarily have to publish or have a lot of papers published, but you do need to have some papers pending. You need to show that you've done some some clinic, clinical research or, or even basic science research, which is more difficult in training. Uh, I think any any opportunity to present, even if it's a local uh, meeting, uh, is great uh, and important. Um, I, I think it'd be difficult to match in otolaryngology if you had really no research or no presentation experience. So that's the number one thing I would recommend. For the osteopathic student listening to this, what do, what do they need to do to hopefully overcome some potential negative bias out there? Yeah, I you know, I, I think research, you know, again, I, you may have to do a little extra research. Um, one of the challenges is, um, you know, at your institution, you may not have an otolaryngology department, and that's okay. If you do research really in any specialty and it's high-level, high-quality research, uh, we know that you you understand um, you, you're, you're curious and you understand how to perform research. It really doesn't have to be otolaryngology. So I think that could be a helpful tip if you're at a program that doesn't necessarily have a otolaryngology residency program. Uh, the other thing I think would be important is um, to do some away rotations. Maybe choose um, two or three programs you're interested in. And uh, most all programs, including ours, you can do a four-week away rotation. And that's really a, a time for you to to have a four-week interview, basically, and, and really shine and 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 show them that uh, you know, listen, you're going to get a good resident here. I'm, uh, um, you know, I, I'm a hard worker. I'm interested, um, and so I think doing an away rotation can be very helpful to make you more competitive. Do you think those away rotations are going to be more sought after and more important with step one going pass fail? That's a. I haven't thought about that, but I, I I'm sure they will be. <laughs> um, you know, the away rotation go the other way is yeah. Well, if you don't perform well, it's a, uh, you know, that's uh, you know another you know the program now is kind of seen you know how you how you know your work ethic and 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 these sort of things during that that month. So if you do an away rotation, you really want to make sure you're honest with you know with the program, but you want to make sure you you perform well. But that's a good point. There may be more desire for away rotations just with the step going to pass fail. What's the most important part about an away rotation that that you're looking for that residents are looking for? Is it is it the knowledge of the field or more of the work ethic? You know, the it's it's an art form a little bit, right? You know, we want uh, a medical student that you're going to be first to show up, first to leave. Um, you've read before all the cases. You've read about all the inpatients. Um, you're not going to get every question that uh, the resident or faculty is going to ask you, but you you want the resident or faculty to know that you're reading, you're very engaged. Um, I, that's probably the most important important thing if you're going to if you're going to rotate. The other the other component you want to be curious. Um, you want to ask questions. Um, you want to be engaged, but you you don't want to do that too much. You don't want to, you, you don't want to be seen to be, you know, as we used to say gunners, you don't want to be seen, you know, <laughs> sabotaging the other students or, or just saying things just to get attention. It's, it's, it's definitely an art form to that. Yeah. For the future primary care doc listening to this, whether a pediatrician or internist family medicine doc, what do you want them to know about otolaryngology to, to help their patients and help you do your job better? Well, I think with you know, I think understanding what patients need to see in otolaryngologists is very important. Um, you know, we're um, you know we're here to help uh, with um, you know conditions that uh, you know primary care doctor may not be as comfortable with. I think we're 
I think overall, otolaryngology has a good reputation of being approachable. Um, I think we all want to help patients. So I, I think it's the biggest thing. Just feel free to to reach out to an otolaryngologist and, and ask them, you know, what sort of patients are appropriate. Uh, from an otology, neurotology standpoint, um, you know, I, I think a lot of audiologists, um, a lot of um, primary care doctors, and, and frankly, most of the population doesn't understand that cochlear implants are available. Um, and even patients that have significant hearing loss, but they can still struggle with hearing aids. Mm. At this point, we're able to place a cochlear implant even in those patients where they can be helped tremendously above even just a hearing aid. So I think the awareness on the um, the possibility of a cochlear implant is something that the medical community and and um, really patients don't understand. So that that that's something that I think would be important for primary care doctors and really all of us to learn more about. What would you go back and tell your your early resident self about uh, about the field and where you've ended up to help yourself? Yeah, you know, I certainly couldn't think of a, a field I enjoy more. This really fits my personality and, and my um, you know career satisfaction. I think more than I, could, I even thought it would. I, I really enjoy my my uh, my profession and 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 helping people. Um, you know, a lot of what I do is improve quality of life and and with with other parts of the the practice. And um, you know sometimes we will deal with uh, more serious conditions like tumors and cancers and things. But you know I. Um, I, I think I'm most excited, maybe not answering a question exactly I asked it, but uh, I'm pretty happy with where everything ended up. But I'm, I'm really most excited with the, the future of the specialty, especially with uh, cochlear implants and plantable hearing aids. Um, you know, a lot of the like the the tumors retreat, such as the acoustic neuroma, instead of having to do these large surgeries, we could treat these with uh, radiation therapy, which I'm also involved with. Um, so I think with our specialty, there's a lot of future growth, a lot of technology um, that is going to just, you know, really pr- progress things along. Yeah. What do you like the most about being a neurotologist? Yeah, I think improving quality of life. Um, you know, somebody that's struggling with hearing, especially, um, you know, there's nothing more satisfa- uh, satisfying than a, you know, four-year-old that you placed a cochlear implant when they were one years of age and now they're talking and, and they're they're going to kindergarten and, and they're mainstreaming into school when if you weren't able to do that, you know, and, and which is okay, they would have to learn sign language and, and maybe have had some more struggles. So, you know, that's very rewarding. Or even, you know, the, the patient that had hearing and, and let's say they had some unusual autoimmune disorder or trauma and they lost their hearing and you place a cochlear implant. And I mean, you know, to bring hearing back to somebody is probably the most rewarding thing we do. What do you like the least? Well, with, as I tell medical students when I when I'm mentoring them, I think when you pick a specialty, you need to uh, determine what is what is a common symptom or complaint that you're gonna you're gonna see that may be challenging. Um, you know, for for neurology, it may be headaches, and you know, for for a spine surgeon, it may be back pain. Um, you know, I think for for neurotology, otology, um, you know, I think we see a lot of patients with a complex chronic dizziness. And and a lot of these patients we can really help. Um, but sometimes this is, these are multifactorial problems, uh, maybe poorly defined problems we don't understand medically. And so, you know, it's, it can be difficult. Um, you know, we want our patients to get better. It can be difficult to treat these patients sometimes. Um, a lot of times it may be a neurological problem or, or anxiety and things like that. So I think that can be one of the challenging things about neurotology is, is you know, treating people with some of these chronic medical conditions that, 
don't have an easy fix. Um, although I think if you're patient uh, and you you involve your other colleagues and other specialties, you can really help these patients. But that's that's something that can be challenging in our specialty. It sounds like you kind of hit it already, but the 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 question of if you had to do it all over again, would you still choose the same specialty? It sounds like you're you're pretty set. I definitely would. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Any last words of wisdom for the the medical student or even a resident who's maybe looking at neurotology? Um, any last words of wisdom for them? Yeah, I mean, I think I would, you know, if, if you're interested in otolaryngology, it's competitive, but um, that's no reason to get discouraged, uh, you know, as long as you're early in your, you know, your medical school training and um, you, you, you've done well with your grades. Um, I think focus uh, on your research, uh, maybe do some away rotations and you need to get into that otolaryngology program. Fortunately, the vast majority of, uh, of otolaryngology pro- training programs are excellent. Um, I think many of them will give you the opportunities to uh, pursue fellowships such as neurotology. Um, and you may go into otolaryngology, um, which I think most residents go to otolaryngology and they don't know that they wanted to do neurotology. Um, so I think uh, it's a broad field. Uh, you may have an, find an interest that you enjoy voice and laryngology, you may enjoy head and neck surgery. I think the main thing is just get into an otolaryngology residency and then, you know, see what uh, is most interesting to you. All right. So there you have it. Another amazing guest for you, Dr. Coots, a neurotologist helping people here. And it sounds like an amazing job, amazing career, and one that he loves. So if you are interested in ENT, if you are interested in neurotology, go do some more research. As always, there's a society for neurotology. There's a society for everything. The American Neurotology Society. You can go check out AmericanNeurotologySociety.com. Go check it out. Find out when there are conferences. Go find out if there are physicians around where you can potentially shadow and get some more information. Thank you to Dr. Coots for his time, for your time, Dr. Coots, if you're listening to this. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. 